0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Enemies from War to Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the often confusing and painful issues that surround human hostilities. In this way, we hope to open the door to greater curiosity, dialogue, and discovery between people who are poised to be enemies, those who are opposed to each other or have been hurt and rejected by each other. Our goal is to help us all enter into the wisdom that prevents chronic conflict from leading to alienation, fragmentation, or war. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist who is the director of Emma Troupe, an experimental theater laboratory in New York City. And I'm here with co host, Polly Young eisendratt She is an author, speaker, psychologist, and psychoanalyst. While we come to these topics from each our own perspectives, Polly and I bring insight from our own lifelong dedicated practices of Buddhism that inform everything we do and think. We hope you find our conversation useful and that you will join us again and again. And now the podcast.
1: Hi, Eleanor.
0: Hi, Polly. Great to be back.
1: Nice to be back. So today we're back on the podcast and I am here with Eleanor Johnson, but Eleanor Johnson has a cold. And so today I'll be doing some of the intro, and uh, yet Eleanor and I will be speaking back and forth as we usually do. So this is officially the second uh, podcast on love and hate. On the first podcast, though, we really didn't finish the topics that we set out to cover. So I am going to speak about some of the topics that remain from love and hate number one, and then cover love and hate number two. So bear with me on this. So I'm going to say that today we're going to be talking again about these two great categories of human relating, love and hate. And uh, we are going to talk especially about what love is. Again we'll review that, why it's not an emotion or a feeling, and uh, what hate is. We, we didn't actually get to that the last time. And why hate is often contained within love the love that we have, especially for others who are close to us, the others on whom we depend. And uh, then we are going to talk about the difference between love and attachment bonds, which we also didn't get to in part one. Then we'll talk a little bit about why we need to understand love as really different from the biology of attachment bonds. These days uh, the two often get confused. People start talking about love as though it were a biological kind of uh, motivation when actually it is essentially a higher human way of relating. And it cannot depend on biology because otherwise there wouldn't be a lot of reproduction going on for human beings if we really had to love each other in order to reproduce. Uh, And so we'll talk about the differences between uh, the biological uh, kind of, let's say, working model of attachment bonds and the spiritual path of love. That is why love transcends the biological and how it actually opens us to a different way of seeing ourselves and others. And then we will talk about uh, attachment bonds among adult human beings which is called adult pair bonding. So those are the topics we're going to cover and I wondered Eleanor if you wanted to come in here at any point right now in terms of the things that I've said. Is there anything you want to be sure that I cover that I uh, haven't mentioned?
0: No I think uh, maybe uh, to remind our listeners a little bit about how you see the self in relation to how you're defining this, you said something, I think it was in our last broadcast, about the self is not inside us. Yes, yes. And so just that, that just to say a little bit more about that, and then also, you know, just I'll say more when we speak about the spiritual aspect of it, as a non-psychologist. <laughs>
1: well, good, good. <laughs> I'm glad to begin with the self, because it is, again, something I want to review, something I've come back to again and again. And of course, that does come from our Buddhist roots, from right. all of the training we've had, uh, in Buddhism, because Buddhism says, let's, let's look for the self. Let's see where it is. Is it inside of our body? Is it outside of our body? Is it something that uh, comes about as a result of some thing? Is, is, the, is the self a thing? We're very protective of it, and so is it a thing? And again and again, I have said that the self is an interactional process. It is a process that forms in our early life. We're not born with it. It forms in the first year to 18 months as we experience ourselves as being embodied inside of a body and separate from something that is outside. At first, we're not having that experience Mm -hmm. as an infant. And then gradually, we develop what's called an identity, which is a kind of a narrative about this is the kind of person I am, this is kind of body I'm in, this is the kind of family I come from, this is the kind of language I speak. This is the culture, the society, the beliefs, the ideals. These are all narratives that we have about this thing that we call self, which is always a story about self and other from its beginning. There are things that we identify with and our families tell us right away, we are these kinds of people and the others are these other kinds of people. So self is always including other. So we're always selfing and othering we're not just inside of a body with something called a self so again it's a habitual interactive process it's dynamic it can change and yet it rests very strongly on the kind of repetitive narratives the ways that we talk about ourselves think about ourselves talk to ourselves talk to others about ourselves and so on so um, that's a really good place to begin Because it also allows me to review just this one other thing that I think is so fundamental to understanding love, which is that love is not an emotion. And the human emotions, the primary emotions, which we covered in one podcast, and then the secondary emotions, the self-conscious emotions, which we covered in another podcast, the emotions are fundamental interactive processes that do not rely on language. So the human infant is born with these motivational processes, which actually cause it to interact in a relationship with others. So the human infant, very dependent on others, cannot do anything for itself, comes in the package of being inside of someone else, comes out of that person, and then depends on that person and others. And communicates through these interactive motivational systems called emotions. And as we talked about it, the primary emotions joy, curiosity, disgust, sadness, and fear those emotions organize us in a very primary way with others before any language, before any knowledge of identity or anything. And then the secondary emotions come in somewhere around. 18 months, 24 months, they organize a sense of self in relation to others. Things like feeling jealous, feeling envious, feeling pride, feeling guilt and shame. And we've talked about all those in other podcasts. So you can see that initially we're programmed in this interactive emotional way that doesn't have any language or story associated with it. Gradually what comes about is that we associate a story with the sense of self and then that story also includes others the others that are not like us and then as those things developed uh, develop over the lifetime they are always always undergirded by these emotions that might not be conscious at all that we're always communicating through our facial expressions our gestures the implications of what we say we don't necessarily know for example that we're that we're communicating contempt. But if we roll our eyes slightly or we toss our head back, it can very much convey to the other person, I'm dismissing what you're saying to me. But we might not even know that. So what's love then? In the framework of all of this interactive, no-self, setting up of self and other, I would say that love is actually a certain kind of attitude towards another, It's a kind of a practice towards that other, a practice, an attitude, a discipline in which you, first of all, really want to know the other. You want to get to know and become familiar with the other in the way that the other also sees herself or himself or or themselves, or whatever the self is that that other is identifying with. And so first you have to know your beloved. Then after you know your beloved, and this is the really, really hard part, you commit yourself to accepting your beloved, just as your beloved is. And the very best kind of love is when we accept the beloved completely. We don't want to change a hair on the head that's very very difficult but it's the best kind of love for humans and then the other component of love is remaining interested in the beloved so that interest includes desire for the beloved it includes the desire to get close to the beloved to know again and again what that person is experiencing what that person's feeling how that person sees the world and that constant sense of let's say study of the beloved inquiry into the beloved eventually gives you a very very big reflection of yourself because the other the beloved is also going to give you an image of yourself back you could see yourself in your beloved's eyes and so that back and forthing of love is a very much more disciplined and constrained back and forthing than the food fight of emotions and you can
0: also hear the need for practice
1: yeah it's like a spiritual practice yes yes, you know it's so with when in in regard to love love is this ability to actually be able to set aside your own feelings and your own emotions the blah 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 of your own mind in order to really see who the other person is um milos the polish poet Uh, his poem about love, I like the beginning part especially because it actually instructs us in regard to love for others. Love means to learn, to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things. For you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, friend. So he's seeing love there as a spiritual practice, but he also says it in a way that I feel is instructive. I often say to people that I see in couples therapy that love means learning to look at yourself as a distant thing. In other words, you have to become more, let's say, objective about yourself. You have to say, okay, so yes, at this moment, you know, I would like to break your neck, but I'm not going to do that. I feel this rage towards you, but I'm not gonna say anything about it. I am going to just feel it and experience it and return to my love for you. Now, some people, and I've heard Eleanor say this before, say, well that sounds like a saint. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's true. But it sounds like a mother to right. me. I mean there are many times when Notice I'm sitting know, at edge
0: <laughs> of <to> my chair.
1: <laughs> when you're you know, when you have when you're there with your grown child and your grown child says something to you that is so insulting or so dismissive or so frightening that you want to react in a way that would crush that other person were you to say it, but you don't, because you know you love the person and you want to make room for that person to have the experience that the person is having. So love, and I think again, we often know it better through being a parent than we do through being a partner or a friend, because with our children, the difference is that we have a strong attachment bond with the child. We
0: identify with the child. Or it's child. easier to be unconditional.
1: Well, it's easier because they, we can we include them in ourselves. Uh-huh. You know, they're Good kind point. of a narcissistic objects. <laughs> we say, "Well, you know, this is my child. This isn't just any child." And so, we have this greater capacity often for the discipline of love with our children than we do with our friends and our partners. And so, again. In the first podcast on love, we talked about just briefly that there are different kinds of love. And the, the the ways that I see love as being different isn't so much personal love and transpersonal love. That's the one that I would say all love is truly transpersonal. If you practice it well, you learn not to take yourself personally. You learn to take yourself uh, as a distant thing, as something you can back away from. You can step outside of, you can decenter from, and you just notice what's going on with yourself in the same way you'd notice the wind blowing. Oh, this is going on, but you don't have to do anything about it. So um, that, uh, that sense of transpersonal and personal I think are not so different, but I think the parent-child love, the partner love, the friend love, they have different flavors. They have different flavors in them that uh, make them different, you know. And I think, really, with our, loving our children, we often have more of that true ability to practice these kinds of ways of perfecting ourselves, you know, the paramitas, the perfections, where we practice patience, we practice perseverance, we practice generosity we, with we, our children.
0: Or we, we come to... As- I'm listening to you again. I, I realize that a lot of people have lost the ability to understand what love is. Yeah, they confuse it. They They get locked into all this re- negative response and create conditions that are the opposite of what they want to create in their relationship. But it's like they've forgotten what love is.
1: Well, you know, what really makes you forget quickly is when your beloved insults you. You, know, you kind of forget in the moment that this is a friend that this is not the enemy. And, and then, um, you know, as, 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 as it often happens in a personal love relationship, after there is that period of idealizing your partner where you fall in love, and this is the most incredible, wonderful, incredible person you've ever been with, and then, you know, the person starts to share expenses with you or moves in and, brings the awful furniture or whatever it is that you begin to feel like ooh, i don't really like this person and oh this person says insulting things to me and i don't feel like my myself when i'm with this person and then you know you have the potential to create an enemy with your beloved because you're protecting yourself so much that you just react and you react again and again And that is in the period that we might call the period of disillusionment in a personal love relationship where the other person is in a power struggle with you and you cannot see the other person through this lens of being your friend. Um, So that's kind of one example of when your beloved, you know, basically you, you kind of don't feel love. That's another really good point, and I think we made it in an earlier show. Love is not a feeling. It is not a feeling. Uh, because we expect it to transcend all of the feelings and emotions that we have. We expect it will endure. True love endures through all of these changes. And, and endurance
0: involves faith. and involves trust. It involves these, these, in a sense, could I say higher emotions almost?
1: Well, I think a higher commitment.
0: A higher commitment.
1: Yeah. and You, uh, have, to, you
0: have to believe in it.
1: Well, you do. And uh, I think that there's a lot of confusion these days, especially about the, uh, how love is, uh, is love biological. Is love an attachment bond? Yeah. And I think that if you uh, get too far into that ideology, you lose track of it entirely what human love is. Yeah. because it's not an attachment bond and it's not even like an attachment bond an attachment bond I I, I will talk about that you know since I think that we haven't yet set we out we haven't
0: said that much about attachment bonds right
1: right yeah. they're biologically um, built in to human beings just like they are to the higher animals to the mm-hmm. mammals and mm-hmm. we see our attachment bonds uh, we can recognize them in other animals where we see them with their young, we see that they, they care for their young, they identify with their young. When the young move too far away, they go and get them. Even I remember seeing recently a duck with its ducklings and how one little duckling was swimming too far away and the mother went out and bit it hard so that it would come back and stay with the group. I mean, it wasn't just a little nip. It was a hard bite because she wanted to make sure that that little duckling didn't go far away. And that um, that issue of staying close to the, uh, the adult or the caregiver or the one that you're bonded to is something that interacts with what we call separation anxiety. And so when, um, just, you know, just like with the duck, when a human infant is born to uh, a a mother uh, and there are usually other caregivers around as well uh, that mother is pretty hardwired not to let that infant out of her sight and uh, once the infant becomes active then uh, the mother is anxious if there's too much separation and of course the infant becomes quite anxious once the infant develops a sense of self as being inside of the body and separate from the inside outside then you get what you call separation anxiety in a a toddler that is uh, 18 months to two years, that toddler will scream if you drop it off at the uh, nursery school and leave it there because it has the feeling of, you know, and it's, again, it's instinctual. It's hardwired. It's like, don't leave me. Ah, Here I am. Come back, come back. And then if the parent doesn't come back, but the infant is safe, the infant goes into a kind of a despair, looks kind of glum, you know, like well, I'm here by myself. And you see this in animals as well. And then after that, into what's called an apathy or a kind of an adjustment, the infant will go on playing, the toddler, you know, and will be seem to be okay. Now if that child were abandoned by the parent and the parent didn't come back to pick it up, some very interesting things happen. One is that the child does go through grief, and sometimes with younger children who don't understand why they've been abandoned, they can die from that grief. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they live, when the parent comes back, often the child does not recognize the parent. In other words, the whole system has kind of shut down around that apathy, which is that that being's not going to take care of me anymore, so I'm going to have to move on. Um, so these are all biological parameters of um, attachment bonds. So the attachment bond forms between a caregiver and an infant. And it forms as a result of the caregiving, the rocking, the hugging, the kissing, the, the sort of I love you, you are safe, you know, you can, you can eat, I will feed you, I will care for you, I will make you comfortable. In fact, the infant sort of feels like I've got you under my control. and I scream, you come. You're like the goddess or whatever, you know. I scream, you come. (laughs) And then you do everything for me. And um, that's the way it seems in the beginning. And also then the mother at the same time or the caregiver has all of the uh, emotional responses feels the joy and the closeness and that tremendous idealization also this this is my child and this child is going to become it feels like true love a genius somewhere. yes and this is oh this is going to be so wonderful because now this is me but in a better version right. and so on and so as this early bond develops between the caregiver and the child's first six months of life you get the whole range Of On the caregiver's side, identification with that child, anxiety about being separated, watching over the child, checking to be sure the child is okay, and so on, and then um, if, of course, the child dies or whatever, the caregiver feels tremendous grief you get the development of that same range of emotions in the child once it develops the self-conscious emotions and feels its own separation. So from about 18 months to two years, the child then develops a full range of attachment bonding and also the um, anxiety about separation and then the grief if there is a complete loss. So in the early uh, development of human beings, there is a very, very long dependency. Everybody has noticed this. Um, and so the dependency uh, lasts at least uh, until the, um, the human is about, about, well, it's hard to say, different cultures. Sometimes there's a little more independence. But really until about 14, the uh, child cannot really govern itself and does not govern itself very well at 14. The brain isn't mature until the child is 25 or so. But um, the governing of oneself, which is where you become your own, um, the captain of your own ship or whatever, you make decisions for yourself and so on. It's a gradual development and that's the gradual development of the sense that you have a self and that you're responsible for that self and that develops in human relationships. It doesn't develop as a result of some technology or some physical thing. It's a result of being in relationships where you see the others and you interact with the others. And then of course, by that time in you know you have language, you have culture, you have the identity, you have the whole thing. So um, but those attachment bonds where we identify with someone, we care for them as a result of that identification, we become anxious when we're separated, we become enraged if we are abandoned. And then we go into grief and pain. If we lose the other, that is a natural parameter of human relationship. And we repeat it in adult pair bonding. When we bond with somebody through a sexual relationship as adults, we do the same hugging and kissing and rocking and baby talk and everything that we did in the early attachment bond. But now we do it and we include genital sex with it as well. Sex has its own parameters and it also has its own demands and its own power and so on. But the sex and the pair bonding have a particular character. And so after you've had sex with an adult partner about three to six times, unless you have a sort of personality disorder, you're a sociopath or something, you begin to feel bonded. Mm -hmm. You feel that same kind of identification. And so, even if you don't like the person, if you're having sex with them, you start to get anxious about where they are when they're out there doing their <clears> own thing. You start to identify, you start to want to possess because those feelings are already built in. You've already got the full uh-huh. array of attachment bonding. Uh-huh. And this has nothing to do with love. As I said to people, you know, you could, um, uh-huh. if you have sex with Genghis Khan, you know, uh, five or six times, you're gonna be bonded to Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan might be a monster and you might not like Genghis Khan very much, but you'll feel the bond, you'll feel identified, you'll feel anxious when Genghis Khan is doing something else away from you. It might be bonding with others and you might lose, and you will feel grief when you lose that Genghis Khan person. So that's really different from love. It intersects with love in a sexual relationship where you fall in love And you idealize the other person. And then you begin to have sex and you have a pair bond. And pair bonding has lots and lots of things. There are are hormonal responses to the pair bonded other. There are physical responses. And there are attachment bonding responses. Again, none of those will produce love in the way we were talking about. None of those will make you see yourself as a distant thing, for example. Or give you the skills to step outside of yourself and really be interested in the other person. That's a different animal and it seems like people have confused sex and love, they've confused attachment bonds and love, and consequently they often do not know that they have to do a certain kind of thing to love another person. And it doesn't mean that they're attracted to the other person, it doesn't mean they desire the other person, it doesn't mean they idealize the other person. It means that they're actually interested in getting to know the other person, and then eventually in accepting the other person as truly a different subjectivity, somebody who is not me, and about whom I might have very negative feelings sometimes, but I will always return. I will always be interested because I have a spiritual commitment to the other which allows me to actually get to know another individual as though that individual were absolutely fascinating, always interesting, come back again and again to it. And to me, that, that kind of love is also very consonant with the love of God. Right. That God is like Well, I'm thinking like that. too,
0: as as I'm listening, that understanding at the deepest personal level all that we've been talking about helps you to understand how to move from war to wisdom. Yes. Because you know it, 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 the mess that we're in right now globally, you could think of it as as pair bonding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, it's, in a we're, way, we're, we're, there's well, no the higher the yeah. higher
0: resonance that's necessary to understand how we can come into some kind of. Um, cohabitation or or communication dialogue whatever um and handle difference yeah I, I, how do you do that if you can't if you if you can't separate out from your own you know again rage and and
1: well you learn how to handle difference in relationships of true love because and this kind of allows me to uh, to talk about hate right you know because i'm i'm going to talk about hate um in a very different way than most people talk about it because I want to differentiate it from other kinds of hostilities and I also want to put it into the framework of love I am going to say something that you know is to me straightforward but because I'm a psychoanalyst I deal with it all the time and it's not straightforward to other people which is that you cannot hate someone unless you love that person that it's a personal response and um I, uh, I think about when I, when I was 12 years old and I realized I hated my father. Um, I really remember the place I was standing and everything. And I, I said it really out loud. I said, I hate him. I then realized that I didn't hate anybody else, that I'd never hated anybody. But I now knew what hate was. And I hated him because he so disappointed my love that I couldn't bear to feel comfortable with him. It was like he became this other that I couldn't understand because I loved him so much and he acted so badly, I hated him. And then I began, even as a young person, to realize that hate was very personal and that I couldn't hate people that I didn't know. I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me to hate somebody unless I knew them, because why would I hate them? You know, I I could only hate if i loved and then i gradually came to understand particularly by doing analysis with people that um that hatred is a part of love that you depend on your beloved you see yourself in your beloved you actually are so interested and you feel um you also feel that attachment bond you feel like you know you're you're connected to the person and their welfare is your welfare And what happens to them and what they do also happens to you. And so when they betray that love, when they do something that seems to break that faith you have in them, then you hate them and you have this feeling that they are other. And then if it's true love, if it's really love on a spiritual path, you have to convert that. You have to actually come back and find out again who is this person and what did this person experience why did that person say that why did that person do it that way what i find in couple relationships is that um when people really hate each other and they have this feeling that they're with an enemy they're they're very um, reluctant to take that step back and de-center in themselves and say okay let me set my Self aside here, let me actually step outside of my own feelings and say to you, why did you lie to me about that? And then truly want to know why you lied to me about that. That takes a lot of spiritual discipline. To me, that isn't just psychological maturity. You could call it psychological maturity. You could say, okay, you know, you're psychologically mature when you can really work with your own feelings and emotions. But I think there's something extra that comes in because you recognize that love and that personal kind of love, that true love that you feel for the other person, it can't be substituted for. You know, it's like this individual is a particular being. There'll never be anybody like this individual again. And if you actually are truly interested and devoted, then you gradually have to see, oh, yes, I have a feeling, of hating you or i feel very betrayed and insulted but i actually am interested in continuing to know you and so i will actually allow myself to try to understand your experience in those moments when you betrayed me and again that kind of love is often what parents do practice with their children because maybe because in this period of time or whatever people really want to be good parents and so they will use this kind of ability to restrain their own emotions and feelings in order to see what's going on with the child. But um, that is what is needed in any situation where you love somebody over time. There will be times when you hate that person because the person will do something that seems to betray your highest values. And also, perhaps, your trust on some fundamental level. And if you want to go on with that person, then you have to be willing to step back in yourself. And so, love and hate then become essentially one project. Um, the psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott um, really pointed this out in saying that, you know, if you love, particularly, he, he was a child psychiatrist and he worked with children, if you love a child, you have to be willing to be hated by the child. The child will break you. It will. The child will break your heart. But you will continue. The love will frame it, will enclose that hatred again and again and again. So in that way, and this is the way I'm talking about hate, love and hate together are actually the path of true love. But you come back to loving that person uh, in a way that... Um, You know, is a little like the love of God. Again, I, you know, Buddhism doesn't have a God like a single God, but lots of gods instead, and divine um, love, yeah, divine love. Divine divine love, love and so people will go back to God, for example, even though God, um, you know, may have caused a, a terrible tragedy for their tribe, but they believe that God actually is somehow connected to them personally. And they'll go back to uh, believing in that God again, having faith again. So in that way, this, um, this kind of path of love is like a path of faith. Like you mentioned earlier, that there's a faith and there's a trust. But the trust and the faith are actually in the discipline of love. <clears throat> They're not specifically in yourself or the other person. Because you and the other person are going to make like thousands of mistakes And you're going to do a lot of unconscious emotional damage to each other. But if you come back to the practice of love, then you come back to that sense of continuing to be interested. Continuing to want to know and then to want to accept the other person. And that other person with their flaws and their limitations has come through a whole growing up process themselves. And they have their own narratives and their own uh, habitual ways of responding. Uh, so in that way, I you know I see love as containing hate and being um, a spiritual path that cannot be substituted by any other kind of path. I mean, it is the path of loving a particular individual. It's it's not just um, people in general, you know, because. Uh, uh I was listening to Billy Collins read his poem Aimless Love this morning because I wanted to hear the poem again and he talks about the kind of love that we have that is kind of the love for the world you know yeah. the the love for the bird or the wind yeah. or the or for him he talks about a dead mouse under the table and that the mouse he has this love for the mouse is still wearing his little brown suit you know and uh, the love for the bar of soap, or these kinds of love uh, are easy compared to this other thing.
0: <laughs> or and again, in thinking of the enemy, when I, I, I'm thinking of, you know, kind of the, the base level with, with reconciliation, mm-hmm. you know, that if you don't have that deeper belief, commitment to a higher love, how can you really take part in reconciliation where you learn, where you really embody? You embody the forgiveness. You hold the mercy. And that even though it's not reciprocal often or mutual or any of that, you still hold to the deeper the deeper presence of that love. You're not wounded in the process.
1: Well, you so, are wounded, but you're not wounded in the sense that you don't forget your consciousness. Well, well, you, have, right. you retain your that's consciousness. Right. That's that's you're, right. be, and, and the thing is, it is possible to forgive, and it is possible to show mercy often, when it's not personal you know when people look out at poor people or they look at people that have been enslaved or whatever they might feel con- tremendous compassion they might feel i mean i give an example in the book that i wrote love between equals where you you know you you listen you go out you're going to uh, let's say you're in a mindfulness retreat and there's somebody there a young person who talks about flunking out of college and you, and you listen to the story this person tells and your heart is just open because you understand how much they tried and how the circumstances didn't work. And you come home and your child come in, comes in and says, I flunked out of college. You don't tend to have a compassionate reaction at that moment because you're identified with that person and you in a, in a moment you see your again. whole life yeah, yeah. is going to be changed as a result of your child flunking out of college. So, you know, in that moment you need true love. You need to take the step back and work with your own feelings and say, so tell me more. Tell me what happened. Yeah. What happened there? So the compassion, forgiveness, remorse, all of these things, they work better with strangers than with the people that we really care about. And that's when this whole idea of personal love can take on this transcendent right. side to it because we care so much and because we are identified with the people that we have bonds with. And uh, we cannot easily feel compassion in the face of their failure. And that's where it takes this discipline and this recognition that love and hate come together. And if you, if you simply go into the hate once your beloved has betrayed you, you can hate that person for the rest of your life. And you can hate with a passion right. and a vengeance. And people do. That's right. In families, for example, You know, where somebody in the family...
0: Or in the world. Is
1: scapegoated. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, again, it, the, the hating with... Again, uh, coming back to the yeah. world, I want to come back to that in a different podcast about hostility in the world because it's not so personal. You know, it's when, it's when somebody personally, somebody that you care about and that you believe knows you personally, says or does something that really hurts you, that really harms you, then can you continue to love that person? And... Uh, um, that's, I think, a question that is like a spiritual question and is a bigger issue than attachment bonds, than the biology of desire, than sexual attraction, and all of these other things that get confused with love. Uh, they're, they're not the same thing.
0: So love shatters. Sh- you mean in... In, in, in the, the wounding process that you, oh, you when, go through yeah. w- when you really truly are... Wanting to embody true love, I mean the, the the ability to deal with the wounding and the brokenheartedness and the betrayal and all of that. Yes, yeah, if you don't
1: deal with it, you, then you lose it. Right, then you lose it. You it, go through the grief, that's and right. then you And you may right. hate that person yeah. forever, yeah. or you may just be distant from that person forever. And when I say that person, I mean I'm thinking especially as a beloved about a beloved in a relationship, but it could be a sibling, it could be a parent it could be your grown child you know your grown child does something that you you feel you can never speak to that person again and that's a tremendous loss that's a tremendous grief however if you don't know the discipline of love or you aren't willing to apply it then yeah. that can be the outcome right. um and and so the, so you know again if we think about biology biology is about you know the way we look at it these days it's about the survival of the species and so if it depended on this kind of love this thing that that i'm calling true love um you know we we'd never have a species um, there's a poem by um this uh polish uh poet named Bislawa Zimborska called true love and i just read a little bit of it because she's looking at it from the point of view of when you fall in love and you feel you've truly found a witness, you feel you've found someone who's like you, who will know you. And she says, true love, is it normal? Is it serious? Is it practical? What does the world get from two people who exist in a world of their own? And then she says, this, this has something to do with the light that descends from nowhere on these two. Um, and she goes on to say, True love, is it really necessary? Tact and common sense tell us to pass over it in silence like a scandal in life's highest circles. Perfectly good children are born without its help and it couldn't populate the planet in a million years. And I think that that's the point again about the difference between the biology of attachment bonds and the true love that we're talking about as love that contains hate. So... That, I think, is the, you know, it it sort of puts the whole thing together. This kind of love is not an attachment bond. Mm -hmm. And it actually cannot be the kind of thing that brings together two people for reproduction. Because it requires a spiritual skill. And it requires a commitment. And uh, um, it's different from falling in love or having a romance or just having a baby and falling in love with your baby. That baby is going to grow up to be a person, a human being, grown up, who might very much disappoint you. And can you still be interested? Can you still go on?
0: I mean, a thought that comes to me with Vyslava Zymborskaya is that when I was in Poland dealing with the Second World War, she was the poet that I chose to dialogue with because I felt that she had such a capacity to bring through that, again, that that... that Deeper space of understanding in terms of the extraordinary conflict that that ripped that country apart, right? And right. um and her poetry was such a source of strength for me during that time, and she's very very dear to me. So again, I deal so much with war <laughs> and and the world, and the way that you deal with the individual, and it just it just feels so um, synchronistic that you bring her into the dialogue this morning, and. Uh,
1: well, you yeah. know, the one the One other thing about her poetry, and it goes back to something you and I have talked about before, she reaches for what I would call the human aspect instead of the biological right. or the yeah. natural. And I don't know that all these distinctions are really worthwhile, but I think there's a confusion right now uh, that a lot of people actually confuse something like this human love with biology of attachment bonds and the thing is as we've talked about it many times human beings can do these things that other animals cannot we can take the step back we can examine our own thoughts and feelings we can see ourselves as a distant thing another polish poet right 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 um and we don't have to do the animal thing We can do the human thing. And I think she very much gets that. She gets that we can do that on a high level and we can do that on a destructive level. Yes, yes. So this is...
0: Fantastic, Polly. Once again, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much. Thank you, you, Eleanor. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies for More to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.